the 20th and 21st of October 2023, the London School of Economics' Failing United States Centre held the conference The Future of Capitalism in an Age of Insecurity. Bringing together leading scholars and analysts, the conference examined the effects of geopolitical turmoil, democratic discontent, anti-globalism and technological change on capitalist economies. On Saturday the 21st of October, the second conference panel of the day was Populism and Democratic Capitalism. This panel featured Professor Sherry Berman of Barnard College, Professor Ian Shapiro of Yale University, and Professor Luigi Zingales of the University of Chicago. The panel was chaired by Professor Stephanie Rickard of the LSE Department of Government. And welcome to our second panel of the day today, which is on populism and democratic capitalism. Uh, so I'm Stephanie Ricard. I'm going to chair this session. I'm a professor here at the LSE, and I'm really privileged to welcome three excellent speakers to engage with this topic with us. It's an important topic because we've seen in recent years this real political opposition growing to both democracy and to capitalism. So in the United States, for example, we've seen the number of people who say capitalism is a positive thing decrease by eight percentage points in the last three years. Only 36% of Americans say that capitalism provides an equal opportunities for success. So this is a real opposition or sort of a discontent with capitalism and indeed with, with democracy. Is my shortness? <laughs> so short. <laughs> Thank you. So this trend that we're seeing, it's not just showing up in public opinion data in the United States. It's showing up in the electoral support and the vote share for populist candidates and political parties. And some of these parties have won so many votes that they've managed to get into government. And so that raises two questions for us to deal with. The first is, What's happened? Where has this come from? What are the causes of this growing discontent towards both capitalism, democratic capitalism, and democracy itself? And the second question is, what comes next? What can we do? What can mainstream political parties do? What can center governments do? What can businesses or firms do? And so all three of our speakers today have offered really concrete policy responses that governments can adopt to react to this growing discontent with democracy and with capitalism. Some of their suggestions overlap. Some of their suggestions uh, really are quite different from one another. And in part, that differences stems from what they think is the cause of this growing opposition to democracy and capitalism. So we really have a nice setup for a very fruitful and lively discussion. Um, and so I'll just briefly introduce our speakers in the order in which they're going to speak. So we'll start with Sherry Berman. She is a professor of political science at Barnard College at Columbia University. Her research interests include the development of democracy and dictatorship, European politics, populism, fascism, and the history of the left. Uh, her most recent book, Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe, is really relevant for our discussion today, and she is widely published in a variety of locations. Ian Shapiro will be our second speaker. He is a professor at Yale University in political science. He has also written, written widely on democracy, justice, and methods of social inquiry. His most recent book, The Wolf at the Door, is focusing on the menace of economic security. So again, squarely on today's topic, and he offers some real concrete policy advice 
to how to address the economics of insecurity. And finally, we'll have Luigi Zingales. He is a professor at the University of Chicago in the Booth School of Business. He is the um, star of the podcast Capitalism and his book Capitalism for the People, again, is directly on this topic of how can we make capitalism work for the people and try to address some of this discontent with capitalism and indeed with democracy. So we'll start with Sherry and just please join me in welcoming them to the LSE. Thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, Peter, and thank you all of us for hosting um, us at this wonderful conference, and thank you all for staying, even though the weather looks to be improving somewhat. Um, so I'm going to talk in conjunction with the sort of title of this panel on um, how capitalism is both a cause of populism, and by populism I'm talking particularly about the right-wing variety, and also how right-wing populism is a cause or again, to use the terminology of this panel, an obstacle to um, dealing with capitalism's negative consequences, forming capitalism, that is. Um, so let me start with the first. Um, so some scholars and observers link capitalism directly with populism. They see it as a direct cause of populism. And the argument here is, I'm sure, very familiar to everyone in the room. It's that economic grievances stemming from things like globalization, we talked about this in the early panel, rising inequality, increasing precarity, the fallout from austerity, um, all of these things lie behind the growing support for anti-establishment right-wing populist parties, particularly, obviously, I'm thinking about in Europe and the United States. Now, there are several problems with this explanation. Um, the most obvious one, however, is that populists don't focus on or mobilize around economic grievances. Um, really, what they mobilize around, what they emphasize are social and cultural grievances. So these kinds of explanations that link capitalism directly with the rise of these kind of anti-establishment populist, sorry about that, populist parties, they leave unexplained this disjuncture, this disjuncture between the causes of populism and what populism is really appealing to, what its kind of nature is. Um, so then we have others, other scholars and observers, and this view, I would say, is particularly popular in the U.S., and these kind of people focus on those social and cultural grievances, stemming from things like rising immigration, the mobilization of various minority groups, um, and for them, that is really the key cause of populism. Now, this explanation is better in the sense that it does link populism's causes with its nature and appeal. Um, but the problem here is that it actually doesn't fit the data very well at all. Doesn't fit the data comparatively. So if you look, for instance, at levels of racism and xenophobia in particular countries, and then you look at support for right-wing populist parties, there's actually very little correlation. So you have countries that are score relatively low on things like racism and xenophobia, Sweden, for instance, um, but yet have very, very electorally strong populist parties. And then you have other countries where racism and xenophobia is actually quite high based on, you know, sort of panel questions and things like that. And actually support for populist parties is relatively low. Southern European countries like Spain and Portugal, Ireland, things like that. Um, historically and temporally, there's also very little correlation. So despite the fact that we hear much more about these social and cultural grievances, 
if you look across the West, things like racism and xenophobia have declined gradually, certainly not as much as we'd like, but gradually and consistently over the last decades. This is true, by the way, of all socioeconomic groups, all educational groups, all occupational groups. This is true. However, however, over the past 15 years or so, the degree to which these types of attitudes have declined has differed dramatically. So there's been a consistent decline, but more highly educated groups have seen these kinds of attitudes decline much, much more dramatically. And therein lies part of the story. I will get back to that. The best kind of explanations for populism, therefore, mix the insights of these two different kinds of explanations, right? And the focus here is on how the negative consequences of capitalism facilitate or create an opportunity to increase the salience of social and cultural grievances and racial and ethnic identities. This explanation is much better than the other two, but there's still, I wanna argue, a piece of the puzzle missing here. Changes in issue salience, shifts in identities do not happen on their own. They do not happen just as a result of economic change, okay? Let me stop for a second and just clarify a couple of terms here, although probably most of you are familiar with them. The first is this word salience, which I've used already more than once, right? So there is a very important difference between preferences and salience. So voters have opinions or preferences on a whole variety of issues, right? That's what public opinion data tells you. But most of these opinions, most of these preferences don't matter when they actually choose to vote for a populist or, or some other kind of political party. If parties don't appeal to these preferences, if they don't offer significantly different options on those preferences, voters cannot vote on the basis of them. So salience is simply a way of measuring whether or not certain kinds of preferences or opinions are prioritized by voters. The second is identity formation. Everyone, all of us in this room, all people belong to many different groups, racial groups, class groups, religious groups, national groups, right? But at any particular time, we do not identify equally with all of these groups, right? Who you identify with, which groups you identify most with depends on the context that you are in, the type of conflicts that you are um, subjected to, whether those conflicts are primarily redistributional, ethnic, cultural, um, the way people are messaged and mobilized by different collective actors, all of these things matter in determining which groups you identify most with. So um, to use a term that might be, uh, or terms that might be familiar to many people in this room, identities are not given, they are made. Or if you, if you prefer your terminology um, in Marxist terms, there's a difference between the class structure and class formation. All right, so if you want to understand the sort of causal pathway from capitalism's problems and economic grievances to the increasing salience of social and cultural grievances and the activation of racial and ethnic identities um, to the rising support for populism, examining political parties is really crucial. Now, we know that right-wing populists really strive to increase the salience of social and cultural issues, and to get voters to focus on their racial and ethnic identities. Indeed, in the political science literature, there is a general finding that parties of the right 
work particularly hard to focus on these things in times of economic crisis. This is not just true of populists, although they do this very specifically. Um, this is true of parties of the right more generally. What I want to argue, though, is that left parties have really played an important role in this dynamic as well. Um, beginning in the 1990s, of course, you're all here in Britain, you know this very well, there was an economic convergence that happens between the left and the right. That is to say, voters have less to choose on because the parties of uh, the economic platforms of left and right wing parties converge. Um, this economic convergence is also accompanied by a shift in the kind of messaging that parties of the left engage in. There is much less emphasis on class and therefore, again, much less messaging to voters about this particular type of identity. This results in a kind of brand dilution, right? It changes the way many voters view what parties of the left stand for, what they're trying to do, who they are championing. And what we see starting in the 1990s, therefore, is an acceleration, these trends began earlier, but an acceleration in voter dealignment, particularly in Europe, right? So diminishing party membership, increasing electoral volatility, and growing abstention by voters, particularly low-educated, low-income voters. In fact, in Britain, for example, the differences in voter um, participation are greater between classes than they are in who they vote for. That is to say, low-income, low-educated voters vote so much less than people from other groups that that difference is even greater than the difference in, in how they vote. Now, this creates an opportunity for right-wing populists who had existed before this time to capture the growing numbers of unattached and alienated voters. And they do this very successfully. They do this successfully by appealing to um, social and cultural issues because, as I mentioned before, there is this gap that opens up by this time between the values, the attitudes, the preference of educated middle-class voters and lower income, low educated voters, and also by moderating the, their economic programs. We see this very clearly in Europe that right-wing populist parties starting in the early aughts begin to shift their economic appeals from sort of Thatcherite, Reaganite kind of programs very much to what is sometimes referred in shorthand as welfare, nationalism. Um, and these changes in the appeals and the messages and the policy profiles of parties of the left and right help explain why we begin to see from this time also the growing salience of social and cultural issues and the prioritization of right of, of racial and ethnic identity. So I, I originally had a PowerPoint. One of the points would have showed you a chart showing how much different parties emphasize these things. And you can see, you know, during the post-war decades, political competition really pivoted around economic policy, economic differences. But starting again in the 1990s and accelerating during the first decade of the 20th century, it shifted a little bit in the last years, you begin to see social and cultural issues much more at the center of political conversation, much more at the center of political competition. And this is where right-wing populism shifts from being a consequence of capitalism to a cause of our inability, I think, to fully deal with its negative consequences. And it does this in two ways. First, as I've already mentioned, because it keeps citizens' attention focused on social and cultural grievances and racial and ethnic identities rather than economic issues and class identities. In fact, 
for those of you who study European politics, right-wing populists have now succeeded in even turning things like environmentalism into a cultural issue rather than a cultural and an economic issue, right? Anybody who focuses on German politics in particular, it's incredible. Environmentalism has now been turned into a thing that is a cultural issue because it's favored by certain kinds of groups. And in these kind of situations, political actors have less incentive and less ability to prioritize economic reform because that's just not where voters are. Second, these kinds of this kind of political competition makes it much more difficult for the left to win electorally. Now, the assumption I'm working on here is that parties of the left are the ones with the greatest incentive to deal with capitalism's negative consequences. We could debate that. I'm going to throw that out there as an assumption. And the problem is when voters are focused on social and cultural grievances and racial and ethnic identities, it's very difficult for mainstream parties of the left to put together a coalition, or it's more difficult to put together a coalition of middle class and working class voters. Um, it's also more difficult in proportional representation systems to put together a left coalition more generally, because when the focus is on social and cultural grievances and racial and ethnic identities, the left loses a lot of voters to the populist right, does not lose them to other left parties, right? And middle-class educated voters, if they shift from, you know, sort of social democratic parties, they shift to green parties and new left parties. So they're still, those voters are still on the left. But when the focus is on these other issues and identities, you lose a lot of your potential left-wing voters to the right, which makes left coalitions, majority coalitions, really, really very difficult. So if the goal, as I understood um, the uh, sort of one of the framework questions for this panel was, is to figure out what are the conditions um, that we need to get a major push to reform contemporary capitalism, I would say that one thing that we need is really to be able to shift voters' identity, uh, attention back to economic grievances and class identities. And again, class identities can change over time, right? They can be based now on things like precariousness and insecurity, because those are the main problems of capitalism today, as opposed to what they would have been a couple of generations ago. Um, now, this would do a bunch of things I think that would be beneficial. Again, working on my assumption, I think it makes it much easier to build majority coalitions on the left. It also would potentially weaken right-wing populist parties because what drives their voters together are these, again, social and cultural issues. Um, they are very divided. Generally, um, right-wing populist voters are on economic issues. They tend to be, again, coalitions of sort of you know, low income, low educated voters, small business people and things like that. So again, the more focus you have on economic issues, the more tensions there are within right-wing populism, less, less tensions within the left. And I think that again, if we really want to think about how to reform capitalism, in addition to the great economic ideas and other kinds of ideas, we need to do that, that, you know, uh, Professor Esamoglu talked about last night and and some of my colleagues talked about this morning, right? Ideas without political champions, political parties, civil society organizations, those ideas can remain footnotes to history, right? They have to be championed by political actors and other actors if they're going to become actual policy outcomes. And so um, in order to have that happen, 
as I said, I think we really need to focus on how do we diminish support for these right-wing populist parties and also perhaps um, increase support for the left. Thank you very much. We all have our 15 minutes at some point, so this is mine. <laughs> I'm delighted to be back at the LSE uh, to talk about this important subject. And I do want to take a minute to compliment the organizers on the choice of title, because I do think that uh, one of the things we've paid insufficient attention to in recent decades, with all the focus on inequality and particularly the the top 1% and uh, so forth, we haven't paid enough in attention to insecurity. And obviously the two are related, but they're very different. And even uh, relatively uh, middle-class people in the economy can feel and be motivated by high levels of insecurity. So I think it's focus on insecurity is uh, spot on. I'm principally going to talk about politics today, um, but I do want to begin and I will return to uh, the fact that underlying everything that's going on is for sure uh, the big structural changes in the capitalist economies with the transition to service economies, with uh, the, the after effects of globalization. We're now in an area of deep globalization, but we're still living with uh, the effects of globalization and um, related strains that are on all of these systems, uh, as Anna Marie was um, intimating with aging populations and changing dependency ratios, massive new demographic pressures on welfare states everywhere. And um, a lot of these issues um, are coming home to roost in ways that I think many elites didn't anticipate in many countries and many political systems. Um, I'm also gonna focus, uh, reference being made to my recent book about policies, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'll talk some about that, but I'm principally going to be talking about politics for the same reason that uh, Sherry Berman was talking about politics, because you, you can't really think about what policies, you, you, if you don't think about the politics as well, you're kind of shouting at the wind with respect to the policies, because you have to also think about, about the ways in which the policies and the politics interact. And I also think it's important to think about what's going on in different types of democratic systems, um, just be, for two reasons. One is um, I think there's a tendency always to think the grass is greener somewhere else. And uh, a lot of people in two-party systems say, of course, what we need is PR and multi-party systems. Um, but you have to look at how these same dynamics are playing out in multi-party systems before you uh, want to necessarily jump on that particular bandwagon because the underlying structural economic changes are affecting all of these countries and uh, playing out somewhat differently politically um, because of the different electoral systems that they have. Um, so I would, I would emphasize before jumping into the politics, um, 
couple of points about the economic insecurity. The first is that um, there's been we've we've gone from a world in which somebody would have graduated from either their high school or college education, worked for one employer for their lifetime, and then retired to a world in which people finishing their initial education today must expect to change jobs 12 to 15 times in their working lifetime. It's a completely different world. And you know, maybe two or three of those jobs are in uh, their early 20s, college jobs and so forth. But even once they are full-time employees, they're going to be changing jobs often. Now, this doesn't really matter for people on the on the right side of the technology revolution, people who are um, you know, graduating from elite institutions and perhaps you know, working as consultants or at a McKinsey or, or somewhere for a few years or doing a few startups, going back to business school, networking more, moving into other things while building up nest eggs of investments. For those people, it's just you know, opportunity after opportunity. But that is not where most people are. For most people, they're going from jobs with good benefits to jobs with fewer benefits to jobs with no benefits, from uh, full-time employment to part-time employment to intermittent employment, and very much going down the occupational ladder. And most importantly, I think, for how they behave politically, down the social status ladder, going from jobs where they had a lot of esteem and recognition and felt like valued members of society to jobs where they are almost embarrassed by the jobs that they have and become um, disaffected, angry, and alienated. Uh, I think a a good recent book that captures a, a lot of how this is now not just blue collar, but creeping up, uh, creeping maybe is, is too slow a word because it's getting such a boost from AI, but up the social order is Dan Markowitz's book, The Meritocracy Trap, which talks about the, the hollowing out of middle classes and the growing insecurity of them. Um, but here's another statistic that makes the same point in a different way. If you think about the income of Trump primary voters in 2016, not general election voters in a two-party system where there's only one choice, but primary voters when there were 16 choices, one third of them had a family income of less than $50,000. That's the median income for a family of four then. One third were between 50 and 100,000 and one third were above 100,000. So two thirds of those voters were actually above the median income, but not the very rich. And so it's just another way of capturing the the population that feels insecure and threatened and that their children's prospects are not gonna be as good as their own is very big. It's a lot of the middle class. Okay, how does this play out politically? I'm gonna talk about multi-party systems first. And then I'm going to talk about uh, two-party systems. The big story in multi-party systems is fragmentation of parties. Um, 
fragmentation, uh, the, the, we have a data set now looking at um, all OECD countries over 60 years, and it's been going on gradually, but it's been accelerating in the last 15 years or so. And uh, the, the number of parties in the parliaments just about everywhere has been growing. And if you, if you want to get some sense of the dynamic of this, the fragmentation has been most obvious and most pronounced with left of center parties, where you know so old social democratic parties um, that used to come in first or second on a regular basis in elections now come in fourth or fifth. Um, they are uh, much less strongly supported by their traditional constituencies. And you, you might say, why? Well, Sherry intimated one of the reasons, which is uh, with, with the rise of neoliberalism, uh, which was, didn't begin with the collapse of communism. It began in the 80s, really, but it certainly accelerated after the end of communism. Um, the, the economic policies that the left of center parties felt compelled to offer were basically the same. Uh, they were just trying to show they could run these economies just as well as the right of center parties. Uh, and the way this, I think, has played out is that um, their traditional constituencies have felt abandoned by them, that the, the um, employed working class uh, connected, wired in, connected to unions has been shrinking as the unionized sectors of these labor forces have been shrinking. And um, so the left of center parties have been defending a shrinking constituency and also less well, because as these parties have gotten smaller, they've had less leverage. And so they began to hemorrhage voters. So in a, say in a country like Germany, they would be hemorrhaging voters to Der Linke, to the Greens, and eventually to the AfD. Um, so, and fragmentation on the left tends to beget fragmentation on the right. So as um, Angela Merkel senses that there are voters out there that she could pick up, she moves towards the center. Uh, to pick some of them up, and that creates a space on her right for the, emer for the emergence, for the strengthening of the Free Democrats and the emergence of the AfD. So I think that that, that is a, a, a phenomenon that occurs on many of these systems. And since we're talking about Germany, um, the 2021 election is the first time it took three parties to form a government. And you start to see the pathologies and the sclerosis that informs um, multi-party governments, particularly when they're not ideologically adjacent parties. And so you now have um, a, 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 the Social Democrats trying to manage this government that consists of the Free Democrats and the Greens. The Greens are insisting on a green agenda. The Free Democrats are insisting on austerity. And so you get things like um, these mandates to change your household uh, heating and cooling systems, the so-called heat pumps, which cannot be fully subsidized by the government because the free Democrats won't let the government do it. 
producing huge backlash, particularly but not only in the East. So if you look at the, in the last elections, the, the AFD had fallen to 10%. If you look at what's happening in regional elections now, they're picking up a lot more. And if the opinion polls uh, that just from the last month show that the AFD is now 21%, if there were an election in Germany tomorrow, they would be the second party in the second biggest party in the Bundestag. They're way ahead of the the Social Democrats, who's sort of bringing their hands, unable to really manage this government. And so it's a it's a sort of everyone used to think Germany had the sweet spot for the greatest, you know, most well-functioning European system. Uh, it doesn't look so pretty today. If we think a little bit for a few minutes about two-party systems, how am I for time? Okay. We think about two-party systems. The big story here is weakening of parties and uh, particularly making them uh, susceptible to populist takeovers. And this is, has a number of sources. Uh, one is calls for much more internal party democracy which is totally understandable because people who feel the parties aren't serving them, their impulse to say, we need to grab control of these parties and uh, make sure that they uh, start to listen to us. And so you have much more membership participation, for example, in the selection of leaders. And you get, you know, say in Britain, the the bastion of strong parties for so long, you get the developments of the Labour Party where you know, a couple of decades ago, the parliamentary Labour Party would pick the leader of the Labour Party. We're now in a world where the membership, 450,000 voters pick the leader and you can get a situation where uh, the membership can elect Jeremy Corbyn, who's way to the left of the median Labour voter, never mind the median British voter. The Parliamentary Labour Party can pass a vote of no confidence in by 172 to 40, and the membership re-elects him by 62%. So clearly this is a great weakening of the Labour Party, and he leads them to one electoral mess and one, one electoral wipeout uh, before they managed to get rid of him. Could tell similar stories elsewhere. Um, then a second big source of weakening parties is the increased reliance on referendums. And um, this unbundles issues and, in, and enables the apparent contradictions that produce Brexit when it's presented as a single issue matter without voters having to um, confront the opportunity costs of their choices and the externalities of their choices by just saying, we don't want to be governed from Brussels. Uh, um, but it's, it's a little like telling a child they can eat all the sweets that they want without attention to the stomach aches that are going to come later or the costs imposed on everyone else is going to have to listen to them complaining when they say, oh, I wish we hadn't left the EU after all. Um, so there's a lot, there are a lot of reasons why single issue um, decision-making is bad. 
and I'm happy to talk more about that if people want me to. Um, but it greatly weakens parties because it it gives parties a way of avoiding bundling issues and instead responding to the intense uh, pressure that comes from single issue voters. The poster child for this is the is Proposition 13 in California in 1978, which started the anti-tax movement, which basically, which limited taxation on all um, real estate to 1%. It was the sort of starve the beast philosophy of starve the government of money. But of course, uh, that never works because programs like Social Security and Medicare are too popular. So when Republicans are in power, they just borrow rather than tax in order to pay for such things. And that's now going on at the national level. I want to talk briefly about primaries. Um, so the, the issue is a good example of how parties become weakened. Uh, the US has had primaries for 120 years. That's nothing new about primaries. But what's changed is the number of safe seats, which is, is steadily increased, particularly in the last 15, 20 years. And that's been due to a variety of factors, partisan gerrymandering when state legislatures uh, draw the districts to favor their party, bipartisan gerrymandering when they make deals to carve up the states, um, uh, just natural demographic sorting, blue cities in red states, that sort of thing is also affecting it. Uh, as, as Sherry said, often the left contributes to increasing the salience of identity politics without maybe fully realizing the consequences. One way that's played out in the U.S. is majority and minority districts, which also creates more and more safe seats. And so you have 85% of the seats now in Congress are safe seats, where the only thing that matters is the primary. And you have very low turnout of primary voters who are, and you get voters principally on the extremes of the parties going up. So this greatly empowers the right wing of the Republican Party and the left wing of the Democratic Party. It's much more of a problem on the Republican side simply because there are more Republican safe seats, about a third more Republican safe seats than Democratic safe seats and about a third more Republican safe states in the Senate than Democratic safe states in the Senate. So this is why um, the Freedom Caucus are more powerful on the Republican side than the Progressive Caucus uh, are on the Democratic side. So uh, these problems are showing up in different ways where you have two-party systems, the mechanism, um, by which um, populist uh, candidates and anti-system candidates infiltrate the, the political order is, is in this way. And by the way, it happens at the presidential level too, uh, that it's a bigger problem on the Republican side. That's why Trump could succeed in a hostile takeover of the Republicans and Bernie Sanders didn't make a lot of trouble for Hillary, but he couldn't actually succeed on the Democratic side. Um, so it is these uh, structural factors in the electoral systems that lead them to play it out in this way. Um, so 
what is to be done? We asked to speak to, to that question. I would come back to where we started. It, it is the economy stupid. And um, the big thing that has to be done is, uh, again, here, I'm just agreeing with my predecessor on this panel that um, uh, left of center parties have to realize it's in their interest to return to economic uh, campaigning and that they need to understand that they playing into the hands of right of center parties to the extent that they play into identity politics. I think that the Biden administration, uh, or I, I, I have a lot of criticisms of them, particularly with respect to the topic of the first panel, but actually it's, you know, they're the first democratic administration since the Johnson administration that are really trying to rebuild what was, we used to think of as the Great Society Coalition, um, the pre-neoliberal turn of the Democratic Party. And if you look at their policy agenda, uh, it really is aimed at trying to address long-term economic insecurity. He's not the greatest messenger, and uh, so he's in a precarious spot, but at least they are trying to do the right thing. Um, the remedies for the politics, I think, are pretty obvious. Um, in multi-party systems to try and uh, re reverse or contain the fragmentation with increased thresholds, pre-election coalitions, those sorts of things. And in two-party systems uh, or where parties are weak, doing things to uh, strengthen them. De-emphasize the importance of primaries. I have various proposals uh, for that. Um, and I think one of them, if we're looking for, I'll end with this more promising uh, developments rather than just gloom and doom, it, it, is, it is encouraging in the US that a, a third of the states now, actually more than a third, 21, 22 states, have moved to so-called independent commissions for drawing, for redistricting. So I, don't th I think trying to get rid of primaries in America is hopeless. But um, getting redistricting away from the state legislatures is a start. The problem is half of them aren't really independent commissions. They're bipartisan, in which case they just carve up the states and replicate the problem. And even when they're independent, they tend to be given the wrong criteria. So they're told, like, don't split up neighborhoods. Well, that's exactly what they should do. They should split up neighborhoods. You know, the ideal world would be one where every district had urban, suburban, and rural voters in it. Um, so, but it is a start, and uh, it's it's a, a move in the right direction. And so, I you know, I've probably exceeded my time already. I could talk more about other things that might be done uh, at the margin, at least, to, to nudge things in a better direction. But thank you. So um, I have to say I'm very honored and humbled to be uh, here. Honored because uh, it's a great uh, group of people, and humbled because uh, it's a bunch of uh, political scientists, and this is a political science topic. And I'm just an economist, 
Now, they helped me greatly because they moved the conversation in the direction of economics, which is the stuff I know, and not uh, the rest, which I know much, much less. Um, I'm also honored because uh, Stephanie was kind enough to, to mention my book. Uh, in 2012, I wrote a book, uh, uh, Capitalism for the, for the People, with um, a very simple idea that there is a tension between uh, capitalists and democracy. There is a tension because capitalists tend to favor uh, inequality in order to provide incentives, and uh, democracy tends to uh, reduce that inequality, in fact, uh, redistribute uh, at some level. Um, however, uh, I say that this tension is very healthy because uh, without democracy, capitalists tend to uh, drift very quickly into an oligarchy. A capitalist system is a, a system, when it is best, a system where everything is for sale except the rules themselves. Uh, but of course, that's very difficult because if everything is for sale, uh, then also the rules start to become for sale. And what we've seen in the last uh, uh, three decades uh, in the United States around the world, that uh, the rules have become for sale. And that has been a degeneration uh, of uh, capitalists into an oligarchy where the pendulum too much in the right direction. Now, my biggest mistake is that I wrote this book in 2012. And by the way, one of the chapters of that book was uh, it's time for populists. And then the only question is which kind of populists we're going to get. Okay. Unfortunately, I wrote the book in 2012 when actually, Romney had a chance to become president of the United States. You remember that? This seems like a prehistory. Romney could become president. Now, he cannot even be senator of Utah these days. Uh, and uh, he could be president of the United States. And of course, the book was, it was ignored uh, at the time. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, my prediction were uh, true, even like uh, uh, more than I myself expected. And, and unfortunately, um, for all of us, uh, in, in the most uh, negative way, because uh, nobody picked up uh, uh, my hope. My hope at the time was that uh, you use this uh, uh, resentment to actually clean up capitalism, not to destroy it. And, uh, and of course, we're not seeing that. Now, um, why uh, I was uh, a bit ahead of the time, not because I'm smart, but simply because I'm a financial economist. And uh, the great financial crisis was ground zero for that. Not only uh, why it happened, but also the reaction to it was uh, unbelievably uh, a representation of uh, uh, a world in which uh, the interests of the few were very well protected and the interests of the many uh, ignored. Uh, and that's really uh, is, is the, the, the source of distortion. Um, I'm also a little bit different because I don't consider populism is a bad world. Maybe it's because of my classical studies, uh, but, you know, uh, democracy is governed of the people. Uh, demos is people, and uh, 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 populism is just the Latin version of it. So uh, there is not really uh, a, a reason for why uh, this should be considered something necessarily negative. In fact, I think it goes to the root of what we consider democracy. And uh, uh, many people, especially in the United States, identify democracy as simply free and fair elections. So you have free and fair election, then uh, the day after the election, every member of parliament is bought off by a few people. Uh, that's democracy, but according to this version, absolutely. Because the elections are free, they're not exposed you by people, but so what? Uh, that's part of the system. Um, the other version is that actually democracy is somewhat a representation of the will of the people. And in fact, 
because of my classical study, I remember the famous uh, um, speech that uh, Pericles uh, gave uh, for the first year of the Peloponnesian War, for the death of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. And actually, what is interesting in that speech, uh, the translation is different because some translation, they say, uh, we call democracy what is the administration in the hands of the many and not of the few. And other translations say the administration favors the many instead of the few. Okay. Now, if you know a little bit of ancient Greeks, it's very easy to have a, a different interpretation because it's a very flexible language. But I think that in the translation, there is all the difference in the world. Uh, what do we consider democracy? Is something that is simply governed by the many, at least give everybody a chance, or is something that is governed in the interest of the many? I think that that's the reason why uh, I think that populists might have a positive dimension. Um, also because I don't identify populists uh, as necessarily a right-wing populist. The People's Party in the United States was not right-wing. And uh, in my own country, Italy, uh, the Five Star Movement uh, defies really uh, sort of the left-right uh, uh, dimension, but is, I don't think, can be considered uh, a right-wing populist. And in fact, is precisely because of the defeat of the Five Star Movement that now we have uh, the real populist, in fact, the real fascist in government uh, in Italy. Um, and uh, I think that uh, the other thing that differentiates me is that uh, I think that uh, populism in the negative term exists only to the extent exists elitism. In, in order for the people to say, uh, we feel out, there need to be an identification of what we are we and what they are them. And uh, this only exists when the them are very well characterized. So in a world with a high mobility, uh, of income, but also political position, et cetera, I think it's more difficult to make a distinction between us and them. In a world in which the elite is very sort of uh, restricted and uh, not very mobile, I think it's very easy to make this distinction. And I think in the United States, we live in that world in which there is a coastal elite. And even if I live in Chicago, I consider Chicago a coastal city because we have the lake. So uh, the coastal elite is dominating and look down to the rest of the people. Uh, the, the sense is, oh, if we're just left alone, all, all the political issue will be resolved by our technocracy, uh, not understanding that there is a important element of uh, interest and distribution. And so they shift this under the rug as there is no issue of redistribution, but in fact, they will distribute from the many to the few in name of a technocratic government. And of course, there is an element uh, of uh, uh, racism, but racism not based on race, but based on kind of a contempt tower the people in the sense the term deplorable say it all. Um, and I agree with uh, Sherry that we should emphasize economic issues, but as a, an economist, I know economics the biggest principle of economics is actually the budget constraint, okay? And so the budget constraints say, if you should emphasize something, you should de-emphasize something else, okay? Because there is a budget constraint. So the left should not only emphasize economic issue, should de-emphasize what emphasized today, which is issues of uh, uh, gender and, and race as primarily issue uh, of the party. Um, I think we should take a page of all people from the Italian Communist Party 
after World War II. Uh, everybody, uh, the elite was absolutely formed by atheists in a Catholic country. They never emphasize atheism because in a Catholic country, if you want to win an election, you don't have to go against the people. Okay? And so, yes, they were atheists, but they were not making the uh, essential program is to eradicate the Catholic religion from Italy. And uh, uh, look, going that way, they almost won uh, elections and certainly they influenced uh, very much uh, uh, all the uh, event in uh, after World War II, thanks to their political strength, okay? So I think that is incumbent upon the left to abandon uh, or de-emphasize certain issues to emphasize the uh, economic issues. And I know this is difficult because there is an entire political elite in the left that grew up ignoring that they are basically the children of the elite that went to the elite uh, Ivy Leagues. And they feel empowered to be leftists because they discuss about uh, the latest issue of LGBTQ, ignoring the problems of uh, uh, the, the reality. I, I have a stepdaughter uh, who came home once and uh, was discussing about uh, the fight at her school, and uh, they were fighting about uh, where to go to the bathroom. And I said, you know, there was a generation that fought for civil rights. There was a generation that fought not to fight a wrong war in Vietnam. Your generation is fighting to where to go to the bathroom. Okay? Did not go down very well at the beginning. Uh, but to the credit of my stepdaughter, a few uh, weeks later, he was arguing my position against her sister. And a few months later said, you know, you cannot say those things because you're white, you're male, and you're even straight. So forget it. You have no right to say any of these things. However, you're not completely wrong. Okay? So I think that uh, uh, it is very important, this, because... I think that uh, is not only capitalism as risk. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, I wrote a book with uh, Raghu Rajan that was uh, saving capitalists from the capitalists. Uh, but I think that now what to be saved even more than capitalism itself is democracy. And need to be saved not only from uh, the right-wing populists, of course need to be saved by them, but also need to be uh, uh, also saved from the left-wing technocrat who at some point, because the people don't vote the way we want, we should some, somehow restrict the vote of the people. I think that, uh, unfortunately, I hear uh, progressively uh, and more and more people from the left that get disgruntled with the fact that, you know, we are smart, we know what is the right thing, and we don't win election. So what do we do? Some say we should get rid of election. Certainly in Europe, no matter what you vote, the outcome is the same because it's decided centralized in Frankfurt uh, by an elite of the technocrat, regardless of what people vote. And the consequences are that people get more and more disaffected. So in Italy, the first version of disaffection was a populist from the center left. And that populist got confronted by the hate of the entire elite. I think that I am the only Italian of a certain uh, intellectual status that uh, was not contemptuous vis-a-vis -vis the five-star movement. Okay? Now, you can say a lot of things. They made a lot of mistakes. You may unlike the others. Uh, in, but 
the level of uh, contempt you saw in the press uh, in every organization uh, was like above uh, belief. Above belief if you don't have a view of history because the people's part in the United States receive exactly the same treatment by the newspaper of the time that were all owned by the oligarchs of the time. So that was a real threat, okay? But if you fight that threat, what you get are the real fascists. So what I think we need to fight now is to understand how to prevent that the uh, disruption that globalization capitalism brought not only bring us sort of uh, some uh, healthy response on the democratic side, but brings a, a drift into fascism. Thank you. very much, Luigi. You gave us a lot to talk about, a lot to think about. Thank you to all of you. I'm sure there's lots of questions. I'm just gonna take the liberty of starting off with a first question, and it's for all of you. Is there a role for compensation? Can the government compensate people who have lost from the current who are feeling economically insecure, who, are in left behind places, who feel left behind, who feel discontent, is there a role for the government to try to compensate these people to assuage the discontent? Luigi, I know you've argued for a pro-market populism. Is there a role for compensation in pro-market populism? Ian, I've heard you argue for a universal adjustment assistance, so maybe that's a form of compensation that you think might work. And Sherry, it can compensation do anything if it's really the salient issue is about identity politics. So I'll open that up to, to all of you or any of you that would like to speak. So let me answer very simply. Yes, there is uh, uh, plenty of uh, opportunities. The question is what forms it takes. So, uh, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, universal health care is an obvious thing that uh, will make an enormous difference and is block uh, for vested interests that block uh, uh, the implementation of that, but that will be a, the perfect form of, of assistance because is universal and because um, hopefully does not have any condescending aspect to it. Um, I actually, and, and I know this might sound strange, especially for somebody coming from Chicago, but I think that when it comes to, uh, for example, uh, the displacement of uh, um, uh, workers, especially uh, it, uh, after the, the so-called China shock. I think that, uh, of course, you want some uh, assistance in terms of unemployment insurance, but I think that uh, in some cases we need to slow down the process rather than just assistance because it's more than just assistance. The word assistance itself is the meaning. And the last thing we want to do is be condescending. And, you know, we want to give you the crimes of, of the system uh, because uh, uh, we don't want you to complain. But for the rest, we can keep doing uh, what is we were doing anyway. Uh, yes, I think I think there is uh, a role for compensation. And I certainly agree with building up uh, things like um, universal health care. The difficulty is uh, starting from where we are now that um, 
you have most people getting their health care through employers. Um, I think it's got, you know, in, in my book, The Wolf at the Door, I, I make the case that it's going to become easier to build a coalition for that because more and more people are, are losing their health insurance or finding it less and less good as it uh, becomes increasingly expensive for them. Um, and propose a, a mechanism that would avoid the sticker shock of adding multiple trillions of dollars to the economy overnight by um, the, the, the idea is most people have health insurance until the age of 26 through their parents. So give it to 20, from 26 to 35 year olds first because young people don't get sick. And so it, it greatly changes the, the sticker shock of what Sanders was or Elizabeth Warren were running on. Um, and then they won't want to lose it and also allow uh, people to buy into it as they become dissatisfied. So I, mechanisms like that. The, the general point I would make, though, is that I think that more important than, than um, just compensating people who are harmed by globalization or, or technology is to help them adjust to the new order. Because if you have, you know, one thing that unemployment statistics conceal in a country like the US is people who've left the labor market. And um, many, many of the most expensive, the expensive people that uh, aren't captured in the statistics in increasing numbers, they go on to things like social security disability insurance. And once you go on that, you never really come off it. And so if you have a 45-year-old going on to social security disability insurance, the dead weight economic loss of that, never mind the opportunity cost of somebody who could be retrained and go back to the workforce is enormous. And so we, um, uh, Stephanie was referring to our argument for universal adjustment assistance. This is the US has a terribly dysfunctional system of trade adjustment assistance that goes all the way back to the Kennedy administration, which was never adequately funded and, and uh, was just a, a tragedy of errors, what a mess it was. Um, but really, uh, including arguing endlessly about, well, what about people who didn't lose their jobs to trade? And in the world we live in today, people increasingly are losing their jobs to technology anyway. So the issue shouldn't be how you lose your job, but can you be retrained to re-enter the economy in a new form? And uh, the Americans have been terrible at this, but uh, some European countries have been pretty good. I think the Danes are probably the state of the art here, um, but clearly it's, it's an idea whose time is going to have to come if you want to reduce the overall insecurity that people are trying to manage. Can I add a point? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm of course, I'm in favor of retraining, but honestly, if you are a manufacturer worker at age 45 or 50, you're not going to be trained to be a web designer the next day. No, uh, but and, you can, and you honestly, can build a nurse, a nurse is, is challenging. Yeah. So, so the question is maybe what we should think about is what is 
the opportunity cost of relocating these people. And it says, most of the time, and we economists have been responsible for that, most of the time we think of that. What is the problem if you shed workforce because they're going to be employed somewhere else? Uh, however, there's somewhere else is at a fraction of uh, the previous uh, uh, wage. So there is an enormous loss that people are facing. So I think in thinking about the, the movement and the, the restructuring, we need to think about this cost. Yeah, uh, fair enough. But there are going to be, you know, many blue collar tasks in the in the green energy economy and rebuilding infrastructure in building windmills and maintaining all of these things. I mean, it's not as if manual labor is going to be going away. Those people that do a lot of these no, things. No, but the, the green cars, the electric cars, require a third of the workforce sure. of the traditional cars. So uh, this is not so, so very clearly, but the green economy is an economy for unemployment for uh, the former uh, auto workers. So Luigi, are you arguing for universal basic income? Uh, no, I'm arguing for uh, factoring in. I'm not necessarily against the investment. I think that what I find it particularly sort of uh, negative is the fact that uh, in this way you feel entitled to do everything because you have a, a payment. I think that assistance is necessary. I think thinking most seriously about what are the costs of what we're doing. So when we, I'm in favor of the green economy, but let's recognize that this is going to be majorly disrupted for a, a large group of people and telling them they can retrain themselves at age 50, it's not going to happen. So these people are going to be unemployed. They, their family were going to be disrupted. So we need to think, maybe we need to do more uh, traditional construction work, but every time you uh, put some cement, you create green, uh, greenhouse gases. So uh, I think it's, it's very easy to talk with green economy when we are uh, the flying class that, by the way, I discovered, you know, that the only thing that doesn't pay any tax is the kerosene for the planes is tax-free. It has tax-free. So we elite, we fly on the plane and we don't pay taxes. And the workers, let's take another tax because we want to reduce the CO2 emissions. I want to bring Sherry back in. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like there's not all that much left to say. I mean, certainly, I don't think anybody in this room doesn't think that compensation is a good idea and that compensation should not just be traditional welfare state policies that help people who are suffering, but also help them to adjust in whatever ways that are possible. Sometimes that can be subsidies move. Sometimes where relevant, that can be subsidies trained. But that really can't be the only thing that governments do, right? I mean, governments, and I think that's why we're all here, also have to be thinking about the nature of the system that is producing a growing need for compensation, right? If you want to solve a problem, you don't just want to deal with its symptoms, you want to deal with the underlying causes, which is a capitalism that is out of whack. And I think this actually brings you back a little bit to um, this morning's panel, which is, I do not see what we are very gradually tiptoeing towards now as a return to economic nationalism or a swing from one extreme to the other. I see what we are tiptoeing back towards is something that is a less coherent version of what anyone who had a brain recognized was necessary in the West after 1945 and the catastrophes of the Great Depression in the interwar years was that governments have a responsibility to manage capitalism in ways that do not create winners and losers that do not create people who feel so economically aggrieved that they are willing to vote for parties that scapegoat whoever the minority of the time is, right? 
That, to my mind, I mean, neoliberalism is a big term, right? But perhaps at the fundamental heart of that is what we see as the correct relationship between governments and markets, between states and capitalism. After 1945, even folks in the United States recognized, okay, wait a second, maybe out-of-control capitalism is a bad thing politically and socially. Maybe governments have a responsibility to tame capitalism so that we don't create huge numbers of disaffected, alienated citizens. I think we are gradually tiptoeing back to that after the financial crisis. I think that is where the emphasis has to lie, in addition to compensating those who are being left behind. Thank you, Sherry. I'd like to open it up now to questions. Oh, we have a lot. Good. Uh, maybe this individual in the white button-down shirt here on the aisle. Testing, testing. Thanks. I think the white button-down shirt is going to be germane to my question. <laughs> um, because, I mean, I, I was struck by a certain amount of agreement on the panel uh, about um, left-wing or center-left parties in particular moving away from identity appeals to um, economic appeals. That makes certain, perfect sense to me. Uh, but Professor Zingale has actually touched on one concept of identity, which is an elite identity. Um, and an elite identity not not characterized so much by concentration of wealth, although that's very important, but by education. Now, I only, I only attend these discussions at elite educational institutions dedicated to creating more elites and a certain way of looking at the world, um, well, not so much looking at the world, but looking at one's position in the world as based on that kind of elite establishment. Um, it's cultural more than economic, I think, and I have no answer to it. But it does seem to me driving to be driving a lot of the resentment, and I wonder if the panelists could talk. I can I can talk for the United States. Uh, England is very different, and I don't claim to know anything about it. But in the United States, I think that uh, the system of financing and education uh, has really created uh, a, a huge divide uh, because. Uh, only a few people can really afford to go to the top Ivy League schools. And then uh, there are a bunch of uh, fellowship and et cetera for a few very poor people uh, that uh, are very bright. Um, and then there is a hole in the middle that is completely excluded from the Ivy League university. They can go to very decent state universities. So I'm not saying they are sort of not privy of the education. Uh, but they live in a in a very different world. And to me, that's part of the reason why at Elite University, they feel the need to find something else to discuss. Because if they are looking at themselves, they say, we are a bunch of privilege and we should change this privilege. And so that's the reason why they try to find new dimension in which they feel minorities, even if they are the most privileged people in the world. And, and that's, that's the problem is, is the, I, I think that we need to break this in some way, but I have no idea how to do it because uh, uh, I think we price ourselves out of existence for most people. Uh, uh, so I think that that's, that's a very serious problem. You want to weigh in? Sure. You don't have to. Um, so 
I agree with the spirit of the question, but I do think it's it, the elite is basically self-identifies primarily in economic terms. I think the the way in which they poured so much fuel on the current alienated politics was the way, not just in the U.S., but certainly in the U.S., the way in which elites responded to the financial crisis, basically by protecting themselves and bailing out the banks and doing relatively little for, the in the U.S., the 20 million people who were kicked out of their homes. And... Um, if you look at the the loss of employment in the in the two, three, four, five years afterwards, and the loss of resources and savings after the financial crisis, the the people at the top came back very quickly, and the the difference of uh, the people at the bottom uh, came back much more slowly and much less completely. And by the way, the same thing has happened in, in uh, over COVID. The, the, if you look at the jobs that were lost and the jobs that have come back, it's the same kind of story. So I think the elites have very much taken care of themselves. And I think they engage in identity politics on the cheap. Uh, you know, as was already said, they, you know, there's no cost to them to getting behind transgender bathrooms. Uh, and even something like affirmative action, you know, the real fight over affirmative action are about promotions for school teachers and in the fire department and the police department. It doesn't affect people who live in Scarsdale. It's not gonna stop them getting their kids into elite institutions. So, so uh, it's, it's a very cheap kind of identity politics, almost a consumption good for the elites. Um, and it plays out so differently uh, in the larger, larger population. Okay, okay, thanks, Sherry. Uh, let's see, uh, maybe the individual here in the striped blue and red shirt, third row. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Grace, I'm a master's student here at LSE. And um, it was stated a little bit in the preamble to the first question, but there's been a lot of discussion about uh, more left-leaning parties moving towards focusing on economics again. Dr. Shapiro, he mentioned uh, Biden's economic agenda. And I was wondering if in a year, per se, if Biden doesn't win the election, how much we can expect the Democratic Party to actually stick with this economic agenda, given that it is called Bidenomics, that's very tied to Biden, and how in recent elections, what seemed to be a very motivating issue for Democratic voters was abortion. I don't know how much economics motivated youth my age to go out and vote. So can we expect the Democratic Party to keep focusing on the economic issue rather than moving back to this identity issue that's motivated both parties for so long. Thank you. Thanks for um, identifying yourself. I forgot to say that. Please identify yourself. So thanks for doing that. Ian, that seems squarely directed at you. You want to take that? Yeah, I think, you know, none of us are good at point predictions about when the next election or whatever it might be. Um, obviously, it'd be a huge setback if, if, Biden, if the Democrats lose, assuming it, it does turn out to be Biden. Um, but, you know, I don't think somebody like me has any value added re reading the tea leaves about the, the next, you know, data point. Uh, my, you know, I, I think the main thing I 
want to point out. Everyone says, well, will Trump be, come back, won't he? Will he, won't he? The point is, if, if we don't address the basic economics here, there'll be another Trump and another Trump. Uh, in in all of these countries, so um, uh, I I don't have a definitive answer to you. I think it would be a setback, um, but it, it's the, it is the first democratic administration since the '60s that is really, uh, if you look at what they've done, is really trying to rebuild the Great Society Coalition, and there's certainly no other path forward for left of center parties. We have a question here on the ends, maybe in the very front row. Uh, David Hellenack, uh, I went to the LSE for my master's degree before most all of you were born. Um, I think that one thing is almost missing from every conversation, although it was briefly touched on by one of our panelists, and that is the word taxation. And I believe that Americans, and I'm very simplistic, as you will know, believed when I was growing up that government should pay for itself, you shouldn't run big deficits, and it should be paid for according to one's means. So during the eight years of the Republican administration of Eisenhower, the highest marginal rate was never below 90%. During those rabid right-wingers, Nixon and Ford, it was never below 70%. It wasn't until Ronald Reagan changed it. And as a result, the questions about education, when I went to the LSE, I'm sorry to tell all of those who are still students, it cost me $110 a term. And it cost me a little bit more than that when I was an undergraduate at Michigan. I think it was 450, even though I was from out of state. And that's because the government actually had some money because people tax people not to redistribute income, but to recognize and affect the benefits they enjoy from being in their country. And so I'd like to hear no political candidate anymore has the courage to say any of that. Taxation isn't even mentioned in these, but it's completely forgotten. And I think that explains a lot of what we're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> as much a part of the national pathology as it is in the United States. I 
So we think that is the major constraint on doing some of the things that I think there's some consensus on this panel should probably be done. Uh, I have a slightly different take on that. I do think it's almost impossible for any Republican uh, ever to vote for tax increases and, and not face the primary challenge. And this is the, the legacy of the anti-tax movement, which I think, you know, a, along with the civil rights movement and the women's movement is one of the three most successful social movements in the 20th century of America from the 70s forward. And I think, uh, but I don't, I think just to, to just round out the point, um, the fact that Republicans can't raise taxes doesn't mean they don't spend. And you know, you've seen massive increases in pro-cyclical deficit spending by Republicans having nothing to do with the business cycle, whether it's the two wars, they're the first wars in American history that are paid, paid for 100% on debt. Not a single tax was raised to fight those wars. Medicare Part D, this is free prescription drugs for seniors. George W. Bush, massive trillion dollars over 10 years giveaway to Big Pharma when it's combined with a ban on negotiating drug prices. One of the other things Biden is actually finally undoing. Obama ran on it, but didn't undo it. Um, and the Trump tax cuts in 2017, huge pro-cyclical deficit spending program. So the, they won't raise taxes, but they will keep spending. Thanks, Ian. You are the person who mentioned taxes, Luigi. So do you want to weigh in? I, I think I've spoken enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to collect some questions. Is that okay? All right. Questions on this side anymore? Uh, yes, maybe the individual in the white shirt, please. So my question is kind of about, oh, sorry, my name is Savannah. I'm a second year undergrad here at LSE. My question is kind of about how do you practically implement this suggestion of shifting mobilization to be more around economic than cultural um, issues? Because, you know, Professor Berman, you mentioned the importance of political actors um, in implementing this, this kind of systemic change. But how do you do that? Is this kind of a policy thing? Because like Professor Shapiro said, even if Biden is doing something to do with economics, he's not a great spokesperson. So how do you convey that to people so that they actually care about it? And if it's not policy, is it about media? Is it about how they are conveying what they're doing to the public? Because now politics is kind of given to people in, in little bite-sized forms by um, Twitter slash X, things like that. So yeah, how do you actually make people mobilize around that, practically speaking? Thank you. We'll take another one. The gentleman just... Thank you. I thought that was a very good question because I have my name is Delbert Sandiford. I used to be an undergraduate here keys years ago. Uh, but I like that last question because is there a role for leadership in all this? What we have here in the UK, for example, is Yahoo politics. The Tories say that the Labour lot are incompetent. The Labour lot says the Tories spend too much. And you don't get a discussion or a debate around any of this. There's a bit of ambivalence in my question because some leaders like Hitler were very persuasive. But we've also had some really great leaders like John Kennedy who persuaded people. Yeah, <laughs> got them behind issues like civil rights, uh, behind issues like going to the moon and so on, very successfully persuading people. Is there a role for leadership in all this? 
Thank you. Maybe one more, the gentleman in the maroon uh, hoodie. Um, hi, a question from a white, straight, and elitist individual. Uh, I'm Rafael. I am an LSA alum. Uh, thanks to the center, there are people from the UK, from the US, from other countries, and it, and it makes for an interesting discussion. When you listen to Americans from academia and from the think tanks, they want the United States to be like the UK. They want stronger labor unions. They want uh, excellent uh, public uh, transportation. They want uh, public health care. But when you listen to what leadership in the UK say, they want to be like the United States. They want to be the Singapore on Thames. They want to be a version of that world. And uh, finally, is the really right and left? Because I see that in reality, there is center right and center left. Like there is no, like there is no more like right and left anymore. When you listen to the debates, you can hardly see any difference between Labour and Tory these days. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sherry, that first question was really squarely directed at you. So you want to start there and then we'll go through. Sure. Um, thank you. So first of all, I want to stress that I think this is a long-term process. I mean, the shift from political competition focusing on economic issues and identities to, to uh, one that is focused also, probably at this point, almost equally on social and cultural issues and identities, that has been a generation-long thing. So I do not think that we are going to solve this in you know, the equivalent of one electoral cycle. But I think both of the things that you said matter. I think putting forward viable, attractive policies to deal with actual economic challenges is crucial. I think that's what Biden has really, really been trying to do, not particularly successfully. That has a lot to do with, again, this sort of generational shift. It also has to do with what this gentleman said, which is, look, I, I think Biden has actually been a very good leader. He's not the world's most charismatic individual. And perhaps, unfortunately, that really does matter. It also has to do with appeals. It has to do with the way parties present themselves the way they talk to voters. Again, I think the Democratic Party in the US and social democratic parties in Europe really slipped in that regard also. They were not speaking to people in ways that I think resonated with a lot of voters. I do wanna stress, however, because having talked about this topic before, and again, okay, I'm not a guy, but I am a white woman. Nobody I think is suggesting that social and cultural issues or progressivism on these issues should dropped from the left. That's ridiculous. The left has always stood for those things, right? The question is, what do you prioritize and emphasize? The Italian Communist Party, just to take your example, obviously stood for secularism. Was it trying to increase the importance of the church or religious values in Italian society? Just understood that if it wanted to get things done, activating that cleavage was a mistake. So I want to stress that when I talk about things that you know the left might consider, it's not getting the left to dump these very important issues or ignore these constituencies. That would be wrong. It's a question of what is the best way of getting everything done? What are the priorities? And, you know, thinking about how to make sure that you don't allow the right to do things that are going to hurt everyone, both economically and vis-a-vis -vis some of these other issues. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I would just, the only thing I would add is, you know, political scientists will tell us, well, voters are basically retrospective. That voters don't, uh, 
vote for for people on what they're proposing to do in the hope that they'll do it. They look at what governments have done, and then if they have been satisfied with that, they reelect them. And if they don't, they kick them out. Arguments about campaign in campaigning and so on have very little effect, and it's it's pretty much at the margin. And you know, you, in politics, you, when you're arguing, you already have lost. Um, if you look at all the literature on mobilization, it's all about framing effects. You know, any consultant will tell you if you if you talk about them, if you talk about taxes for a Democrat, it's terrible. It doesn't matter what you say. And for a Republican, if you talk about Social Security, it's terrible. It doesn't matter what you say. They try to change the subject. But mostly governments have to deliver. And I think that um, left of center parties and mainstream parties, we've become very U.S. focused here, but uh, in, in the European countries, too, they have to deliver on the sorts of things that address the economic insecurity. If they don't do this, do that, this kind of politics will continue because they won't get reelected. I think that uh, as academics, the first uh, responsibility we have is to create awareness so that uh, young people like uh, the undergraduate from LSE uh, make the difference in the future. So I think that the first responsibility is to create awareness. Um, the second problem, I think, is uh, the influence more broadly, and this is not just campaign financing, but campaign financing is huge, of money into politics. I think that that is really what is changing. So uh, Biden, uh, is kind of a strange miracle because uh, the Democrats, a big chunk of Democrats, are raising more money than the Republicans. And they don't raise more money by getting from the small people. They get more money from the big corporations. So they're not that different when it comes to the final policies because uh, money matters. And uh, they were they made a big deal out of antitrust and they had a bill. And when a bill had to, to go to Congress, they didn't present it. And why didn't they present it? Like uh, some people say because Chuck Schumer had two daughters, one works for Google, the other for Facebook. But uh, maybe that's a story, maybe something else. But I think that the, the reality is that the, the, the Democrats uh, are in bed with large business as much as the Republican, even more. That, that's the problem. Henry Truman, when he retired from president, went and lived in a little uh, house in Liberty, Missouri, and uh, they created a pension for president because he didn't have money to survive. And uh, when Obama stepped down, he was giving like uh, speeches at $400,000 speech. And now there's three mansions, one in Washington, the other in Hawaii, the third in, in uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard, maybe also the house is not a mansion, but in Chicago. I think that that's the difference in, in the world. And, uh, you know, people say this doesn't matter. Uh, but as an economist, I cannot think that the future uh, payoff do not matter. In a sense, uh, uh, Janet Yellen is a great uh, secretary of treasury, but, you know, she made $8 million in the year after she stepped down from the Federal Reserve, $8 million in speeches. Now, my question is, if her monetary policy was not in favor of banks, do you think that she will be so welcome and give you speeches with that? No. And uh, do you think that exempted this might play a role? As an economist, I refuse to think that that doesn't matter. 
Thank you. <laughs> I've very kindly gotten permission to collect one more round of questions, but keep in mind that you're standing between us and lunch. <laughs> um, the third row, where did our, the individual in a jacket, black and white shirts here. <laughs> They already went to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll do this one. And uh, yes, the individual with glasses in the back. Oh, and then one more, the, the individual here by the, the by the pillar. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad I'm not the only one keeping us from lunch. Um, <laughs> look, this is a really great panel. And I was really struck by particularly your comment, Sherry, at the end about thinking through, uh, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. Elizabeth Engelson, historian here at LSE, assistant professor. Uh, Sherry, your comment about thinking through the nature of the relationship between the government and the market, between the state uh, and the economy. Um, and one thing we haven't really heard in today's discussion um, is the sort of more international context in which capitalism operates now, right? We Most particularly the role of multinational corporations. So to how politically we've spoke, we've heard a lot about sort of domestic politics and domestic responses to populism, but so, some of the reasons that somewhere a place like China, for example, can be sort of a target of populist rhetoric um, is because it can so easily be seen as taking jobs when often those jobs are the consequence of multinational corporations' decisions and the movement of international capital. So what are the political ways at a multilateral level we could monitor, change, regulate the movement of and proliferation of multinationals sort of collecting so much money in this economy. Thanks. Um, the, the, gen, the individual with the glasses, there he is, way in the back. Hello, I'm Khan. I'm a recent LSC graduate. I want to ask something very basic. How we define populism. Since 50s, 60s, we start defining populism with economic grievances. And as some of the speakers mentioned, now we are talking about the cultural identities, cultural grievances. I want to understand which way is the best to understand the recent rise in populism, because when we look at uh, the cases in Italy, how we define populism based on the ideolog ideological spectrum may not give the best solution. Is there a way to define populism as the strategic rational choice that is incentivized based on what's happening globally and domestically? Thank you. And then the final question, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, for lunch is uh, the individual right by the pillar. Yeah, thanks. Um, hi, my name is Mira. I'm a second year PP undergrad. And um, I was actually had more of a clarification, but you, um, for Professor Zinkalis, you mentioned um, about how like the most privileged people somehow victimize themselves. I was wondering what level, like how far back do you go to find person people to advocate for and whether you restrict that to like citizens of your country or like the global order like uh, to advocate for the less provision thank you you want to take questions through two and three uh yes uh so to me this is they are political scientists so they know the definition better but to me the definition of populist is do you there are two characteristics first of all do you trust the experts more than you trust the ordinary man? Okay. Um, and, and two, um, do you see a distinction of us versus them? I think those are the two characteristics. 
And I try to have them neutral so that this is not that one is better than the other necessarily. And this is not the left versus right. And so you can be a populist of the left, you can be a populist of the right, and you can be an elitist both in the right and the left. I think that uh, is uh, affirmative action here. Um, uh, the, the second is, uh, um, I think that uh, in every country, uh, this uh, kind of uh, uh, interiorization has taken uh, uh, different forms. And uh, in part, in my view, if you take the United States, there's the shift in the Democratic Party starts with the Vietnam War. And uh, why? Because, uh, first of all, at the time, people were forced to go to war. And so if you're young and you're forced to fight, you want to revolt. Whether you're rich or poor or left or right, you don't want to fight. And so the anti-war movement was very important in bringing a lot of the upper class into the Democratic Party that was not traditional. Um, and at the time, the unions were uh, actually pro-war. And so that started to create a, a divide between uh, the blue-collar workers uh, that uh, were traditionally the, the base of the Democratic Party versus uh, the, the upper level. But I think there was a strategic use also of uh, issues as product differentiation. If you have, if the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, have the same donors, and as a result of the same economic policy, how do they motivate people to vote? They have to differentiate themselves on another dimension. And so uh, abortion, uh, gay marriage, all this stuff is phenomenal because it gives them the opportunity to differentiate without touching the wallet. And that's, by the way, the reason why corporations love this stuff. Because I can be super woke and at the same time have my wallet full with my last paycheck. So the two is a phenomenon. The first question was squarely at you, Sherry, and then I'll give Ian the last word. Um, I just want to start off by saying that one of the most hopeful things that I've personally experienced on this topic is someone from the Chicago Blue Business <laughs> talking like this. So there's hope. Um, <laughs> say, um, look, I think the great question, I forget where it came from, which is that if we want to think about how to reform capitalism, make it more compatible with democracy, this is something that has to happen at the domestic, the regional, European, let's say, and international level. Again, this was something that was distinctive, I think, to the post-war period, to learning from the tragedies of the Second World War, something to focus your mind, like a really horrible war and a Great Depression, that these three levels needed to work together, that the institutions, that the arrangements that existed at all three needed to kind of work together if you wanted to create particular type of outcomes, right? So that's the way, you know, policymakers in the West saw it after war. Now, again, I'm talking about the West. So, you know, take that with, a, you know, sort of with that limitation. So absolutely thinking about how the international order needs to be revised to help correct these problems, not just in the West, but in the global South, those things need to be integrated. I want to just say um, sort of one last thing, which is um, actually the populism definition, yes, it's a mess. I particularly think, again, sort of following Lewis a little bit, it's a sort of very clear anti-establishment us versus them, but I focused on right-wing populists because those are the ones weirdly who have benefited most from this crisis, you might have thought it would have been the left, but it wasn't. So they are the ones that I think folk, I focus on, but the term is broad. The last thing I want to say is the funny thing is, Louis, which you know better than I do, perhaps, is that 
This research about parties being most responsive to wealthy and corporations, that's obvious in the US, but, but the communists have done research on this. It's true in Europe as well, right? So the money in politics is important in the US, but there's a deeper systemic problem here, which is that parties, even those not dependent on the kind of crazy funding system we have in the US, are more responsive to wealthier individuals in Europe. And so there's something deeper going on here, a deeper crisis, I would say, of representation that populists are certainly thriving on. Thanks, Sherry. Last word. Yeah, so two points. One on where does all of this go back to? I, I think particularly in American politics, there's a, a history of innovations dream, being dreamed up by the starry-eyed left and then being hijacked by the cynical right. And I, Primaries is a good, good example of this, but identity politics is as well. Where does this start in the US? It starts basically within the civil rights movement in the fight between uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Martin Luther King's ideology was rub the noses of the, of the elites in their own hypocrisy, make Americans live up to their professed public values, and um, deliver for African Americans uh, the 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 benefits of the American dream. And Malcolm X came along and said, "No," he said, "Multiculturalism. We don't want uh, to be. We don't want integration. We want recognition of separateness." And I think that was the beginning of the search for uh, a different kind of racial politics. And just going back to Sherry's earlier comment, which I think was I, I endorsed, the, the, the Martin Luther King is a way of pursuing uh, racial ish, race issues within the context of uh, the broad Great Society Coalition. Uh, if you start to engage in multiculturalism, you open up fissures within that natural constituency and it turns out that the right is much better at identity politics politically than the left. And they, you know, are laughing all the way to the bank with it. Final point. Um, yes, all political parties are massively responsible, responsive to business interests. Uh, this is much more obvious now with left of center parties because they didn't used to be, but now they are. And it's, of course, in many ways, not surprising with the labor movement so far back on their heels in all of these countries, the power of business in the political economy has never been greater. And uh, my book, The Wolf at the Door, uh, which has been mentioned in many ways is aimed at business elites because, you know, if you if you compare the world we're living in now to the world after the Depression, in the world after the Depression, a lot of, not all, but a good number of economic elites realized that um, there were going to be people who were badly hurt by uh, the machinations of the economy for a long time to come. There was a communist alternative out there vying for hearts and minds. Um, they were very influential in things like the AFL-CIO in the U.S., and the sort of Avril Harrimans of this world thought, yes, we want to make sure, they were also Keynesians, but they want to make sure that the 
the the working class doesn't conclude they have nothing to lose but their chains. I think one of the uh, ways in which these elite arrogance has played out since the collapse of communism is well, you know, capitalism's the only game in town now. People have nowhere to go. They need to. Sh this is the kind of neoliberal outlook. People just need to shape up and get with the program. And if they don't, it's their problem. We we don't have to worry. We can move to the suburbs and build more prisons. And I think that the that the big wake up call of politics in the, since 2016 has been actually there are a lot of ways in which politics can play out that business elites are not going to like trade wars, uh, massive constraints on on immigration, things that are not good for business. And, you know, just to to end back to end with a shout out to Darren's talk last night, unless, you know, business elites need to realize that promoting inclusive growth rather than growth that isn't inclusive is in their interest, because otherwise uh, the kind of ugly politics we're all now living with is going to continue and get worse. Thanks, Ian. Um... I know there are lots of unasked questions, so I apologize for that, but hopefully we can continue the conversation over lunch, which will be served in the back. We'll reconvene here at two. Thank you very much to the panelists for an amazing talk, a really interesting. I learned a lot. I hope you did as well. <laughs>